0: This is the Bill Bennett Show. We uh, are the podcast that translates Donald Trump. You'll get a good translation of the campaign today with Kaylee McEnany. More about Kaylee in a minute. We take a look at serious matters that face America and confront existential threats to our country. We also like to look at the future of our country, where we're going, and we'll do that in the immediate future, campaign future with Kaylee, and the longer term future with Joel Farkas. Uh, Joel is a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Also, we'll hear from uh, Kaylee. McEnany, as I mentioned, she's national press secretary for the Trump 2020 campaign. A lot of things to talk about, Claude. A lot going on. A
1: lot going on. You've been traveling a lot. You're all over television, but you're also working on a major paper. Tell us a little bit about it.
0: I am. I am. I uh, talk a little bit about some of the themes in it in uh, our conversation with Joel Farkas coming up. But This is a paper commissioned by uh, people at the Fordham Foundation and the Hoover Institute and uh, two pretty well-known uh, Conservative places, think tanks, serious think tanks. Uh, And the topic is, what is the conservative vision of education? Mm -hmm. Um, And they've asked 20 different people, all of whom are more or less conservative, to write a paper and deliver a talk on what the conservative vision is. They gave me the opportunity to be the last speaker and writer in the series. I'm the 20th. And I'm going to tell you, I'll preview what I'm going to say in this speech in June. There is no conservative vision of education. There used to be, but there isn't now. Mm-hmm. And there needs to be one. Um, let me let me go through the main points I want to make, and I, I hope this is of interest to our audience. We used to have a kind of consensus, at least among conservatives, and it was strong enough that moderates and even some liberals bought on to it. Uh, high standards, accountability. Uh, serious teaching of uh, content in the schools of of serious things, Um, and that uh, these things would be measurable and that we would hold ourselves uh, accountable for results. That's kind of collapsed. Mm -hmm. Politics has intervened. Fads have intervened. Justice Holmes says there are fashions in the intellectual world as elsewhere and there's no place in the world called the intellectual world, if you like, Uh, education, uh, where fads are more prominent than in education. Mm -hmm. People love the new shiny thing. I When I was secretary of education, I talked about the three Cs, content, character, and choice. Choice is dominating the conservative conversation right now. But it's not really a theory of education. It's a, it's a procedural theory. It says give parents choice. I'm all for it. But it's a means to an end. When you get that, exercise that choice and get to the end, get to where a school or a homeschool, mm-hmm. um, what is taught? That's the real question. I want to spell that out a little more uh, here in a minute, but and, and certainly at length in the paper and the speech I'm going to give. But the interesting thing to me is the contrast now. The liberal consensus, which was close, close to the conservative consensus, except it certainly didn't agree on choice, has now become something else. The liberal consensus on education now is not even about education. It's about social justice, mm-hmm. equity, equity. Main concern is social justice and equity. Uh, Reading and writing arithmetic are okay, but get that suspension rate down. Mm -hmm. Uh, Make sure kids understand if they're privileged or not privileged. Uh, There's a social agenda. I won't disparage it here. I don't agree with it, but it's not a theory of education. So conservatives have kind of missed it by abandoning the heart of the subject. And I think the left has kind of missed it, too. Um, look, I understand the, the desire to decrease suspensions. First of all, I'm not a fan of throwing kids out of school Mm -hmm. because many of the kids you throw out of school, the most disruptive kids are going to end up being disruptive out of school Mm -hmm. and you're just substituting the uh, police station for Mm -hmm. the principal's office. All right. I prefer it in school suspension. It's not the environment you want to send the most disruptive kids out to is an unsupervised environment on the street or home. Correct. Right. But be that as it may... These efforts to increase social justice uh, in the schools have had an effect which has led to, in summary, a decline in in academic achievement. So in Pittsburgh, they lowered their suspension rate of all kids of all races. They also lowered the math scores. Mm. You know, a disruptive classroom is not a classroom in which you can learn. Mm -hmm. And then there's this craziness. I talked to Joel about it here later on. Where in California, they're talking about passing a law that says if you're willfully defiant of a teacher, you still can't be removed from the classroom. Mm -hmm. It's a very old textbook on education written in the early 1900s. And it said the first thing to a teacher, the first thing you must do is get order. Mm -hmm. You can't teach if it's not orderly. Right. Not organized, not, not quiet. And you've got classrooms in this country today where people are, kids are yelling at teachers. insulting them, cursing at them. Go ahead.
1: No, I'm, and, and in some extreme cases, uh, physically hitting a teacher. Assaulting them. Oh, absolutely. And and you and you get um, officers uh, at a, a, a school who's there to uh, maintain uh, order. And, you know, if a kid puts their hands on the officer or the officer, you know, then grabs the kid and tries to pull the kid out of the class, the officer's in trouble.
0: That's right. No, it's... Um this is why
1: uh, this is why people choose different schools. This is Why people homeschool too, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. We currently homeschool our son, Manny. Um, I'm, I'm blessed that my mom's a retired teacher, and so she homeschools him and my niece and
0: nephews. And uh, uh, but yeah, no, it definitely great. goes into the decision. Absolutely, it's great. I mean, uh, you cannot pay a teacher enough to do what a parent or grandparent will do out of love. Mm-hmm. You know, they just, there's, nothing, yeah. there's no amount of money that, you know, what your son Manny is getting from his grandmother. Right, you know? right. It just, uh, it's amazing. So um, that, I understand wanting to, you know, uh, have more justice, more equality, more social equity, but not at the price of learning. And can't we have both fair rules for disciplining students uh, as well as learning? hmm the heart of the matter, however, is content. You go to school to learn, and the way to learn is to learn stuff, learn mm-hmm. things. There's uh, some very popular theories now that say the way to learn how to, the way to uh, what well, what schools should do is teach kids how to learn. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you learn how to learn <laughs> is to start by learning something, right, something, right. reading, reading in a subject, and we've kind of forgotten that uh, the importance of that content, that first C that I talked about in the 80s, content, Mm -hmm. character choice, content. Um, A child's vocabulary is very important in this end, And that child's vocabulary can be uh, enhanced, increased dramatically uh, by the right school materials and by reading and by conversations with adults, such as Manny has with his grandmother. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And um, the difference in word grasp and vocabulary between kids who have parents who don't talk to them uh, and kids who have parents who do talk to them and who read and learn a new vocabulary in this way um, and and new words in this way uh, can be vast. Um, And it predicts. It predicts how kids will do. It predicts how kids will do in SAT. Vocabulary predicts how kids do in SATs and like it or not. SATs actually predict For a lot of people, not for all, certainly, but for a lot of people, how well they're going to do. Sure, sure. So this is very important. So I I call for a return to emphasis on content. I talk about what needs to be done in the schools and in the state legislatures. And I hold up a couple of states as good examples. Massachusetts, which did some wonderful stuff. And everybody's heard the statistic that if you... Uh, when you compare the U.S. to other countries, we come in 25th or 30th in the world in education. If Massachusetts was a country, it would be 10th in the world. Mm. But they're backsliding, and they're backsliding because of pressure from the left wow. in this direction of justice and social equity rather than than learning. Now, no one's opposed to justice. It's just what does one mean by this, you know? That's that's the question. Mm. Um so that's uh, what the paper's about, and I hope I have formulated a conservative vision. I'm drawing a lot from the experience of state legislators. Uh, I'm chairman of something called Conservative Leaders for Education, and um, I work with state legislators uh, around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the rubber hits the road. There are things they can do uh, and ought to do to make, uh, make uh, education and content and education a central part of a child's life. The reason we need to do this is conservatives have, for many years, almost abandoned the field of education to the left. Mm-hmm. Teachers unions, powerful. Uh, school boards, you know, more, more tend to be more left than, than center or right. Conservatives have to get in the game. And I've, I hope I have given them something of a blueprint to get into the game with this uh, with this paper and the speech.
1: You, so where do some of the extracurricular activities fall in line with this as far as sports, music programs, some of them being taken out of schools, art, uh, music, art, and sports for kids in education?
0: Well, I think they're they're all important. Mm-hmm. And and um, music, art, and sports, and I just talking about sports. I think you know, it comes to the education of character. A lot of kids learn right. about yeah. character and mm-hmm. resilience from coaches. That's right. Um, Mike, high school football. When I was secretary of education, I started a practice, which is now done routinely by every secretary of education, honoring a teacher. Mm-hmm. The teacher I honored was my line coach in football, mm-hmm. who taught me that toughness is not walking around with a macho attitude, you know, like you're a hot shot. Mm-hmm. Toughness is resilience. Right. Uh, to be able to take a, a licking and keep on ticking, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's a very important part of teaching. And I think everybody, you tell me, but I think everybody who homeschools at some point wonders, are their kids missing? something by virtue of the connection. Now, there are these communities that have grown up around homeschools, and there are some enlightened districts which allow kids to participate in music and art programs and in sports programs. I don't yeah. know if that's the case with your guy. Oh, it is. No, we, we go out of
1: our way to try to find, um, we call it to supplement all the other uh-huh. things like that uh, without compromising any education. But yeah, no, and, and there's all kinds of co-op groups now. Um, uh, there are all, uh, all kinds of programs that will allow homeschool kids to come in, even if they're not a part of that school system. And, and, and yeah, there's, there's ways around it. Uh, but, but it's interesting. That's one of the first questions we get from individuals who may not know anything about homeschooling. They, they say, well, well, what if, is Manny missing the social element? Or is he missing the social element?
0: Uh, listen, I, I, I got to the point where I thought I could recognize from a two minute conversation with a kid whether he was homeschooled or not. Mm-hmm. And it was from his comfort level with adults. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the homeschool kids are more comfortable yeah. with adults because they spend all this one-on-one yeah. time oh,
1: with adults. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, you know, when, when when we're together and Manny's with me, he has no problem coming up to you and saying, Hey, Dr. Bennett, and shaking your hand. And yeah, that's right. He's 100% comfortable. Sticks his head in the podcast sometime, mm-hmm. right? He comes right over to your house. He takes
0: his shoes off, and <laughs> he's running around. <laughs> and that's a pleasure. Yeah. And that's a pleasure. All right, well, that's it. So I'm I'm hoping... This paper will have some ripple effect. We'll put it out on the website when it's ready uh, in, uh, in June.
1: You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill
0: Bennett Show. Let's welcome for the first time Kaylee McEnany. She is national press secretary for the Trump 2020 campaign. Kaylee, thank you for your time.
2: Hey, Bill. Great to join you.
0: So we have one thing in common, maybe other, well, two things in common. We both support President Trump, uh, but also uh, we both went to Harvard Law School, right?
2: That's right. A very small group of us and certainly even smaller if you narrow it down to conservatives at Harvard Law School.
0: Well, I was just thinking if you take those two, you know, conservatives at Harvard Law School who supported Donald Trump, is there maybe one more or two?
2: (laughs) There is. There are actually two more who I know who work in the administration. So okay. we've got a handful.
0: Okay. Did you? Uh, there's a funny story I'll tell you. Did you? Was Dershowitz retired by the time you you were there?
2: He was unfortunately. I would have done anything to sit in on a Dershowitz course. It would have been quite something.
0: I'll tell you a funny story. I took four courses with him when I was there. Uh, wow. And, yeah. And um, he, uh, one morning on Fox, and I know people love seeing you on Fox. I, I'm a Fox News contributor about a fair amount. They were interviewing him, and then they, as they were going to break, they said, now coming up is Bill Bennett, who is one of uh, your students at Harvard Law School. We understand Professor Dershowitz. He said, oh, yes, yes, Bill was um, my best uh, conservative student. And uh, I came on and they repeated that to me, Kaylee. And I said, well, uh, two things to say about that. One, it wasn't a large field in which I was competing for most conservative." I said, second, I hate to say this about one of my favorite professors. He's not telling the truth. I read his book and he said Ted Cruz was his brightest conservative student. and oh, onto, you got him. And and I, I and I believe that's true. I have my good days and bad days, but I'm no Ted Cruz when it comes to, to intellect. Anyway, it's hey, you're
2: you're pretty close, Bill, and, and I'm sure i I always wondered what the Socratic method uh, was like in a Professor Dershowitz class. I can imagine it was not pleasant.
0: Uh, no, it's it's uh, very tough, but uh, learned a ton. And he's boy, he's doing a service for the nation now, isn't he, in clarifying things?
2: Oh, he is. Yep.
0: Let's talk about the campaign. By the way, uh, do you uh, uh, do you talk about and pay attention to the Senate campaigns as well?
2: Uh, not as much. Okay. Know, we're pretty much exclusively focused on the president until, um, in the reelection of the president. But the president, you know, occasionally along the way, uh, he'll help out uh, Republican candidates where he can his rally on Monday. Uh, is in support of of Fred Keller so in in Pennsylvania's 12th district. So he does try to help where he can.
0: Great. All right. Well, let's talk about 2020. I want to break it down disaggregated, but uh, start. How does it look right now, do you think, for President Trump in
2: 2020? Look, we're very far out at this point. It's very hard to get the contours of a race when you're, you know, still 18 months out or or nearly 18 months. So, you know, it's difficult to look at the contours and get a clear picture, especially when you don't know who your opponent is. But in a way, we do know who our opponent is, and that is socialism. And it doesn't matter who emerges from this field. Uh, we consider them homogenous, whether we're talking about Bernie or Biden, uh, Warren or Klobuchar. We consider all of them to be radical leftists. None will emerge as centrists. They will all emerge with the surge of socialism attached. And that will be quite a battle uh, playing out between socialism and the hottest economy in modern history. And we're very confident uh, will prevail in the end, uh, despite not knowing the exact details of what the race will look like just yet.
0: And I understand. I hear tons of things about how far ahead you are of where you were before, uh, and um, uh, you know, in 2016. And um, the technology is advanced. Uh, your work is advanced. Uh, and and uh, you've got you've got this database that uh, is is going is going to be a gr- of great assistance. What's uh, what's changed since 2016? Obviously, the record of the president, a very positive way. Things that have happened, the economy. Also, I think um, what's happened is for a lot of people who weren't sure uh, and maybe didn't pull the lever for Donald Trump, is they see that it was not the end of the world. Uh, he wasn't someone hell out, out bent on, you know, getting the U.S. into war and so on. And that seems to me to be be an advantage as well for the middle of the country, the moderates, the people who are undecided.
2: Oh, yes, there's no doubt. You know, one of the biggest differences is we had promises in 2016, and in 2020, we have deliverables. Uh, the president can say, I'm not just promising to bring back manufacturing jobs. I've done it, bringing back nearly half a million after we lost nearly 200000 under President Obama and Vice President Biden. Uh, that's just one metric, but paychecks going up the fastest pace in a decade. It's another so there's so much we can point to that are deliverables. That's one of the key advantages we have. Also, I would say just the sophistication of the campaign operation. Uh, you know, we really admired uh, what the 2016 campaign was able to do, uh, but some of them self-describe it as trying to build an airplane while in flight. Uh, to their yeah. credit, they landed that yeah. airplane. Yeah. Uh, it's a great effect, and President Trump is the president, but this time around, we have the incumbency, we have the advantage of time, uh, and, and we're going to use it and are using it. To build the, the largest uh, operation of volunteers, a coalition's department that's sophisticated and build out something that wasn't a part of the 2016 operation. So we have time uh, as a big advantage, and with that, we will build uh, the biggest, uh, and not necessarily when I say biggest, most employees, uh, but the biggest in terms of volunteers and grassroots energy campaign in modern history.
0: Obviously, 2016 uh, results were a huge surprise to people, but I think there's still an untold story about the as someone, uh, another Trump supporter put it, the non-campaign camp that, campaign that succeeded. I mean, it was it was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? What what wasn't there uh, in that uh, in that campaign in terms of organization, research, technology, etc.
2: That's right. And they did, you know, in the 2016 campaign, uh, we have a few of those veterans here and, uh, they would tell you, look, we did have a ground game when the, when everyone was saying, oh, the Trump campaign doesn't have a ground game. Well, we did have a, an operation in place and, and they did have a sophisticated data modeling system because they had Brad Parscale on the team, our campaign manager now, who's a data guru. And, and we of course had the RNC, uh, who the RNC had for, for nearly a decade been building, uh, this data uh, voter score modeling where every person in the country has a score and that score determines uh, whether we think that they'll be mobilized and going to polls or whether they ide- ideologically fit uh, or are persuadable. So this voter score modeling was there in 16, uh, but it's even better in 2020 because we've updated it based on the data that we get from our rallies.
0: You know the inside, I don't, but it, it doesn't seem to me that it was from a B plus to an A. It was more like from a B minus to an A would would that be fair?
2: You know, I don't want to grade the cam- the, the twenty sixteen campaign, but I'll say, hey, he's president, so okay, I, can I got you. All an right, that's fine. reached the goal.
0: I'm just saying more cre- more credit to him and those few of you who were there <laughs> that you were able to pull it that, off. But I'll, I'll, I'll get off this. That list. is
2: true. He deserves the he deserves the credit, no doubt. I mean, only the candidate uh, would have won a race like that in sixteen, and only the candidate will win in twenty.
0: No, and and the surrogates because uh, there was a fair amount of ridicule, a fair amount of criticism. We know that, and I know you're tough-skinned about uh, about that. It is a remarkable thing to watch the other Democratic candidates beat up on Joe Biden, Kaylee, for not being sufficiently left. Uh, just was Joe Biden of the Obama Biden administration, which was a pretty leftist deal. So I mean that that is it seems to me proof positive that this this party's headed to the left cliff.
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's not about liberalism anymore. It's about socialism. They demand that you support government takeover of health care, that you support government takeover of the energy sector. These are all demands uh and joe biden he will have to walk on a tightrope and you're right say he has a record of liberalism a record of failure Uh, we
0: we see in 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 when people react on socialism uh, you know as a former college professor i I get very depressed when i read millennials you know what do you favor socialism or capitalism and they favor socialism there's an initial appeal people find out what it really means and what it costs the numbers go way down but Claude's question is related to that appeal, particularly for part of America. Go ahead, Claude.
1: Right. So on an uh, earlier uh, edition of the podcast, we had talked about this very thing about how, you know, when you stack one against the other, there's no doubt capitalism is better system. However, there are those in, um, in our country who have been left behind and they, they have not reaped the benefits yet of capitalism. And so anything sounds better than, than what they've been experiencing. Charles Payne had made this point. And so how do you how do you communicate to those who could be won over uh, uh, that? Hey, we know you've been left behind. Socialism. Socialism's not the way.
2: Well, see, if you would have asked me this question two years ago, I would say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Millennials, many of my colleagues were shut out of the job market, did everything right. And for a decade, uh, were really kept out. Uh, kept out and a job they promised, waiting at the end of college, just simply wasn't there. And people, Americans, were struggling across the country. But what I would say is, look—you look at the facts, uh, and not only are, are paychecks growing, but they're growing twice as fast for low and middle-income Americans. And the Wall Street Journal had seventy had a, a number of economists tell them nearly seventy percent that they expect paychecks to grow even faster. Uh, so people are feeling it in their lives when you start to see that translated. Polling, like the CNN poll, which showed 71% of Americans say the economy is in good shape. There are fewer and fewer people left behind. And what that means is fewer and fewer people who ascribe and will be pushed into the model of socialism. I think it's something like less than a quarter of the nation supports socialism. Still too high. uh, But nevertheless, as this economy continues to grow, uh, there will be fewer forgotten Americans. I know that's the president's mission.
0: All right. Let me ask you um – Ask you this, uh, uh, this? You'll see in my questions. I'm making suggestions, and you can take them or, or reject them. But um, numbers first. Am I right that uh, Hispanic support of the president is now at about 45 percent
2: Well, there's been various public polls out there, some you know showing anywhere in the range of between 30 or at the high end, uh, you know, the the mid to high 40s. So, um, no, I, I don't want to get into our internal polling or internal data, but. You know, what I would say is we do see in public poll after public poll an uptick in support for the president. Uh, And, you know, he got he got 30 percent thereabouts uh, of the Hispanic vote, far more than people thought he would get. And we expect to get far more than that uh, going forward to 2020.
0: And and I also understand an uptick, not massive, but an uptick in African-American support. Is that correct?
2: That's right. You know, we have seen that again in public polling, uh, an uptick there. and We want to grow that number. You know, when you have the uh, lowest unemployment rate for for black americans on record that's a very big deal yeah. uh and same for hispanics
0: and and uh, hear my question because back to this conversation we have with charles Payne, you know what i'm talking about charles Paid from fox business and, and fox news channel of
3: course yeah and,
0: and he said you know uh the word needs to get out and and when we were talking, uh, Charles and I, and I said, well, remember the president said, a lot of people criticized him for it, I didn't, but he said, I think it was in Detroit, uh, you know, uh, to the African-American community, what do you have to lose? You know, look what look what liberalism and leftism has done for your communities. What do you have to lose by supporting me? And indeed, people have a lot to gain, as you just mentioned with the economics and jobs and so on but is is there a thought to going into the black communities going to black churches in detroit or chicago or someplace because because i understand it you're again the expert i'm not but if those numbers tick up one two three points in the black community it is a real problem for the democrats
2: yeah it is absolutely uh we will we'll have a coalition it will be a a group of men and women uh who will be dedicated to just that surrogate in the black community, going out, uh, speaking to African-Americans, telling them the good news of the Trump presidency, which hopefully they're feeling in their lives, and we believe that they are. Uh, so we will have absolutely a dedicated operation uh, for just that, for sharing the good news of the Trump presidency, and, and for other cohorts too, uh, for Hispanics, uh, for union workers, so we will have very niche uh, coalitions that are that are targeted and, and effective.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I'm not going to tell you how to run the campaign. I, I get very fortunate to talk to the president occasionally. He'll call me up if if he's watching and I say something he really likes or something he doesn't <laughs> like. I hear from him, you know. Uh, he's from Queens. I'm from Brooklyn. We speak very directly to each other. Anyway, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to suggest that he do that. That he that he go to some. You know, on the invitation of uh, of a pastor, uh, go, go to some mega church uh, in the inner city, or go to a couple of them and speak directly. I think it, I think it'd be a be a great thing. It'd be a great thing for all the rest of us to see too. But let me ask you now about the most troublesome group. I say that half half uh, sarcastically, and that is suburban women. What I'm sure you know some, Kaylee, right? Some of your friends.
2: I <laughs> I do I do, and I have good news on that front. Uh, when we looked at our online, our online donations going back to January, 51% of our contributions were from women. And on the fundraising front overall, not just online fundraising, uh, but we are beating every Democratic campaign among women donors. And uh, the number two is Kamala Harris, and we, we've more than doubled her numbers. Uh, you know, I, I see these women at rallies. I go to each and every one of the rallies, go through the crowds. Uh, I talk to these women Uh, There is a fervent group of of women supporting President Trump, and polling, public polling continues to underestimate the female vote. Uh, It did so, I looked back at convention polling, uh, and it showed the president underwater with women. Uh, He went on to do quite well among women. So I I know that this is a much-talked-about group, uh, important group uh, to our voting base, but it's one that we're very confident that we can win.
0: Do do you see the numbers improving significantly from uh, 16 among suburban women?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't want to, again, talk about internal polling. Uh, so all I have to go off of is the, the public polling. Um, and the public polling, uh, you know, does not, we believe, reflect where the president is with women. Uh, we look at our online donations uh, and we look at the support that we get. Um, and, and we see we do see growth among women, despite what the media would say. What did
0: those women uh, who are supporting and contributing, what have they seen in the last two and a half years? that uh that, that encourage them
2: yeah they see uh, a 65 year low in unemployment they see the fact that president trump is the first president to ever put paid family leave in his budget uh, that's a very big deal for a lot of working moms out there uh you look and this president for 11 straight months has seen female unemployment below four percent uh that's and those are numbers that president obama president bush even never saw in you know, the SBA, Small Business Administration, lent about $500 billion more in capital to women-owned small businesses uh, in 2017 versus 2016. So on every front, uh, there are specific achievements that we can point to for working moms, for working families, for suburban women. Uh, so we have a good message uh, to share with the American people on a lot of fronts and uh, with women as well.
0: Kaylee, if I keep asking, uh, sooner or later, will you give me internal polling or should I just give up?
2: <laughs> give
0: up, I, I, right? Okay. I won't
2: because okay. I, that, that would be giving away, giving
0: away the game. Right? I, know, I, know, I know. Lord knows I don't want you to do that. Give us some sense of the game, though, of the schedule at a 30,000-foot at a level. Uh, what's what's the rollout? What What are we going to see? What do we look to this summer, fall, so on?
2: Yeah, you know, the president is still maintaining his rallies, something he continues to do uh, throughout his presidency. He draws strength from those,
0: doesn't he? He really draws strength from the crowds, doesn't
2: he? Oh, he he loves these rallies. He loves being around the American people. Uh, we've been strategic. We've been in Panama City, Florida, obviously, Key Swing State, sure. Grand Rapids, Michigan, Wisconsin, obviously very key to the president's successes. You know, The president has been uh, all across the rest of the world. We'll continue to do so, and we'll see when his rally schedule picks up. That's entirely up to him. But as you'll recall, uh, leading up to 2016, uh, there were some days he was in three states at once. So we'll see how much it picks up because he does still have his day job, of course, over at the White House.
0: I do think, and I don't expect you to comment on this, I do think for a lot of people, and I think some of these suburban women we're talking about and others, you know, the world didn't collapse. You know, he, he didn't declare war on, uh, on, uh, on other countries, uh, you know, unilaterally. Uh, you know, he didn't uh, do uh, things that uh, were predicted, you know, the economy would melt down. I, I just think some people just say, well, you know, I'm reassured by the fact that he didn't do all these horrible things people predicted, and he's actually done a lot of very good things. And I think that uh, this is this is got to be something very much in his favor—the reassurance vote, if you will, uh, after two and a half years.
2: Sure, and the media was apoplectic uh, at know, his election, yeah, saying yeah. that exactly as you said. You know, the world would come to an end. Uh, if you listen to Paul Krugman, the economy was about right, to collapse. Right. None of that happened. You know, they continually oversell their message, and their message is always Democratic talking points, uh, and they continually demonize this president. And there's a lot of people who say, hey, life is pretty good, and, and we can ask the same question, are you better off today uh, than you were four years ago? The one that President Reagan asked and the one that the American people looked around and said, yeah, we, we are pretty good to the tune of giving you 49 states. So not necessarily predict, predicting a 49-state victory, though what we are saying is, look, this is going to be, we think, uh, a very good election for us based on results.
0: Well, we need to let you go. Uh, You do a great job. People see you and and, and enjoy listening to you and learn from you. And I, uh, for one, I'm very glad you're there. And uh, I will keep uh, pressing for internal polling, though it's not going to do me any good. Like the, like, the goldfish, <laughs> like, like the goldfish who keeps hitting his head against the, the bowl, you know. I'm not getting anywhere. But, but Occasionally
2: we give out some numbers, Bill. So okay. when we do, I will keep that in mind.
0: All right. Very good. Kaylee, thank you so much. Thanks for your time and give our best to everyone there, huh?
2: Thanks for having me. I will do that.
0: You bet. Bye-bye.
1: You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
0: It's time to catch up with Joel Farkas. He's the director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, welcome back to the show. Great to be doing this in person, Joel. It is. Really nice. Yes, I love it. I was uh, doing the uh, Fox Nation event in uh, Scottsdale. I did that uh, yesterday. Yeah. And uh, a lot of fun. Man, I t- it turned out to people... Uh, they had hoped for a 1,000, I think, and uh, invited 1,200. They got 1,600 people. That is wonderful. And, that is uh, wonderful. Just, I saw some snippets of did it. Did you? Yeah. yeah. No, I, uh, it was really, really very exciting, a lot of fun. And, you know, just great Americans, just great people, just wanted to come to be with other people who believe what they believe, feel like they feel, and it was good. I had a brief interview with a guy named David Webb. He interviewed me about uh, American Patriots' Almanac, and Donald Trump and all, but anyway, it was good. And you know something? Uh, by way of getting into conversation with you, is uh, a lot of young people. Yes, yes, millennial types. I was very glad to see
3: it. I used to live in Arizona. I know, yeah, and it's a, it's a wonderful state. And Scottsdale is great. The metropolitan area is great. Tucson's wonderful. Tell us uh, because you had, you sent me something about
0: millennials and the folks are fascinated. They keep writing us about your. It kind of, kind of travels with Joel. I think we ought to call these segments, right, as we move around. Of course, you've moved, right, from yeah, California to sure. Colorado. Another, yes. another move coming up. Arizona, right?
3: another Arizona. move coming up out yeah. of Colorado. But millennials, the movement of millennials tells us something, doesn't it? What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that um, everybody who has the biggest megaphone, who promotes cities all over the world, these huge, huge cities, they're wrong. It also tells us that millennials are... Uh, They're instinctively, intuitively, many of them pretty smart. You know, all you hear about is the the knowledge economy, the educations, uh, all the beautiful, wonderful things in these large cities. There's only about 10 cities in America that are more than a million people. There's there's about 19,500 incorporated jurisdictions in our country, most of which far and away most of them are small. And um, those small places, um, they have jobs. They have houses you can buy. You know, the economists like to talk about labor participation rates. The labor participation rates in some of these small sta- Midwestern states and smaller cities far, far outweigh the United States as a whole. And, uh, you know, uh, the millennials are looking at when they look at economics, it's really simple. How much do I make? How much does my house cost? How much does my food cost? Transportation? Healthcare, utilities—it's a really simple calculation. Although all of those all of those categories are being attacked by the progressives in this country, that like to take over and monopolize healthcare. They'd like to, you know, you have utility companies in this country that are that are regulated monopolies and trying to increase their rates for, uh, uh, you know, to, to get, get this green energy economy. Every single thing that happens in the political world is an attack on those five categories that middle-class Americans pay attention to. Let's let's go
0: with the major thesis here and then maybe break it down in some of those categories. But uh, it was a rite of passage uh, for a lot of young people. It still is, I guess. It was for my two sons to get out of school, in their case, business school, and go to New York. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of their friends did. Sure, is this diminishing now? I will say this: the charm of New York seems to have worn off. Some certainly for one son, and I think will for the other. um You know, they get their first paycheck, and they, they look at it in New York, and then they look at the apartment, and they yeah. look at the square foot, and so on and so on.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, we've talked a lot about homelessness and poverty. Right. That, that's that's the charm that's uh, that's headed in the uh, headed in the wrong direction. Almost every major city, you know, we've 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 seen this in San Francisco and LA and Chicago and New York. It's just despicable what is going on with with those cities. But the um, the allure, it's 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 perfectly fine to when you're young. You're not you don't have a family. Um, you want to try something new? You don't have as many obligations uh, when you're young. You have the ability to fail in your job and try another one. Those are all fine. Uh, so that is the rite of passage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but when you go to those cities, I can tell you one thing: you will not do. No matter almost no matter who you are, you're not going to buy a house. So um, that's for sure. What do you end up doing? You uh, you rent. And this, uh, I, I just I just have a. a, 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 a I'm, it's an anathema to me to have this notion that every single kid and every single couple that's going to get married and have kids, they can't buy a house and they have to rent. Um, one thing: If you're renting, you're never going to create any equity ever. The home building business doesn't have a, many advocates. We hear about healthcare; it's big. In, it's a, you know 20 percent of the economy, the GDP of America. Uh, so is home building. So, so is so is housing. Housing's eighteen to twenty percent of the economy in the country. Um, but when you have people, when you have policies that are forcing people to rent, and we talked about Minneapolis passing. Um, yeah. laws restricting single family. Well, guess LA, LA Los Angeles is now uh, proposing to do the same thing. Um, there's just an assault on a single family house for a young couple or a family near a good school. It's an assault in this country. Um, I'm in the real estate business and I, I have never actually built a project where it was a rental project. I don't think that's good. Um, when I build I mean, something. Not good, not good for you, not good for. Well, I, it's Red not here. good. It's not good. Well, I'll tell you who it's really good for are real estate investors who build apartments. It's really, yep. really good. Yeah. They make a lot of money. There's, there's REITs, these real estate investment trusts, some of the best performing vehicles in the country in the last 10 years. It's good for them. It's not really good for the, 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 the consumer. If you're in a business where you build something and the consumer buys it from you, and then makes money from it, that's really good. Um, And that's where I think we talk about, people talk about income inequality and all these inequalities around the world. Well, that's the first one. You don't let someone earn something and make something from what they pay for. Right off the bat, you're going to have inequality. Yeah, it's, it
0: is interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in New York, um, and um, I go back, and I was always glad to go back to see her. My son's, one son is out, um, and you know him, you know John. The other son is still there. But someone was saying to me, one of the great things about you know, New York, makes your point in an odd way, but said is, is, is if your kids go to New York, they'll, they'll want to see you because they can't afford to go <laughs> to the places.
3: <laughs> you saw that coming, you're, didn't you? are welcome as long as you're buying dinner. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know. And uh, gee whiz, we were up there recently, and we saw our younger son three nights in a row. Uh-huh, yeah. Gosh, I, I, I can't remember yeah, when we had, had three nights yeah, in a row. Very good meals. No, there were three, yeah, there were three good meals for him and his girlfriend and, and, and Mrs. Bennett and me. But... um that and then uh, this story that uh, that uh, Mrs. Bennett told me of a, one of the moms in our neighborhood whose daughter's up there, and mom went up to see the apartment and she walked in the door. She said, "Oh, this is, a, is this the den?" And <laughs> and the kid said, "This is the apartment. This is this is it. You know, this is the whole thing." Yeah. Uh, and you know, it just seems odd to make those kind of concessions. What what did you say? They want to know what they're making. Yeah. And, you know, you can get a pretty good salary in New York. Yes, you can. But then you get hit with the taxes. Right. Yeah. Uh, food costs. You can't buy. Nobody buys a house Nobody.
3: the no. Fewer than 20% of the people that live in L.A. or San Francisco or New York could possibly buy a house.
0: So I, back where I started, so is the message getting through? Are people going
3: to Oklahoma City instead? Uh, yes, it is. U-Haul just came out with their most recent uh the statistics as to where their their rental trucks go and where oh, they come from. Uh-huh. People yeah. leaving uh, five places they go: uh, uh, it was Texas, Florida, South Carolina, Utah, Idaho. Where are they leaving? Michigan, Illinois, California. It's not the only statistic, but it's it's certainly a good description of where people are are leaving and where they're going. Yeah, you know, I I, I love to. I can't not talk about California one more time, but Please. all the uh, the Silicon Valley, Bay Area experts and geniuses, um, they're the ones that somehow get all the press. Uh, they made a few billion dollars or several billion dollars. Therefore, they must be smart and you must listen to me. Well, look what just some of the most recent companies, um, Airbnb. What do they do? Help you save some money on your vacation. Uh, Tinder. Get more dates, Um, Lyft and and, uh, Uber, Um, try to get in a car faster instead of a cab or public transportation. I'm not demeaning the fact that they made several billion dollars. They're very good ideas. But they haven't solved much that helps someone who's middle class who wants a family. They haven't done much for them. And that's – so therefore – That's interesting. Continue with what your business is. You're a smart, visionary businessman. Just – Be quiet about advice because now they're not going to be quiet, but I would just tell all the people who are open to hear something different. Don't listen to them all. Listen to something else. Listen to your gut. Listen to your instinct. And that's what millennials are doing. Yeah.
0: You know, I just, uh, I was thinking about my world. Uh, You've heard me say before, every anthropologist loves his own tribe, but I was translating a lot of what you were saying into the whole education business. And, you know, for a lot of these young people, when they go out and look for that first job, they're also carrying a burden of debt. Yes. Yeah. College debt. I mean, we're at $1.6 trillion now, Joel. Yeah. And we're on our way to two. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, excuse me for introducing politics into the discussion, but sometimes I just think there's a kind of madness out there, often in, incarnated in the state of California. I, I'm doing this paper. It's a series of uh, 20... Papers, a conservative vision of education, and it was interesting because uh, the nineteen preceding papers, in my view, were not a vision, conservative vision of education. I'm not sure there is one, so I tried to do one in, in this paper. <laughs> Wonderful, but um, but but uh, talked about a number of things. But uh, the left, I'll get back to California here in a second. The left now is really much less interested in reading and writing, yeah, uh, and arithmetic. And more interested in in the schools, in social equity, social justice. Yeah. So that the main priority for a lot of school systems this year is to reduce the number of suspensions, <laughs> uh, and certainly to not to have any disparity by race or gender or anything else uh, in suspensions, uh, which is to be blind to facts of family life, family composition, different circumstances of people. Um. Then I read and I thought it was a parody that there was a bill in California that would keep prevent teachers from removing from the classroom or the school students who were guilty of, quote, willful defiance. Yeah. That you cannot remove the child for this. And apparently this came up before through the legislature and Jerry Brown thought it was outrageous and didn't sign it. Yeah. But apparently this governor, this governor will. Uh. Are the are the ideas that are in the air about education related to the ideas about housing and and jobs and transportation and other things that you are describing? I mean, is it all part of a certain kind of mindset, left and the right, or the
3: left and the center? Uh, it is, and Bill. You are so on point. When I build a community. Where someone purchases a home, the first five questions people talk about where's the school where's the school um, how is it? its a good school and, yeah um and and it is it's not even i don't i do not need somebody to do another report research paper on schools and housing. We in the business know that it's absolutely not a, it's empirical and it's factual what people why people are moving someplace we used to always talk about schools and housing as being important and then uh, economists would then bring up well jobs well we now have the most fascinating set of circumstances in the united states jobs are leaving these big cities to these areas so now we have housing schools and jobs and if anybody wants to know why people are moving and seeking those locales it's those three things And it used to just – the school discussion is unassailably important. And one of the things that we've tried to do in communities is, okay, now you're building a new area. How long is it going to take for the schools to get built? We now have mechanisms to get schools constructed and operational before the first people move in. That is – the most important thing.
0: When I was secretary of education, you, you, may, you may remember I told you, my wife, Elaine, said, uh, you know, go to the schools, uh, see what's going on there, and then uh, and then make your pronouncements. Uh, I said, Elaine, I, I, I'm i the secretary of education of the United States. I don't do retail. I do wholesale. And her father, who was in sales, said, uh, she, she remembered, she said back to me, do good retail. You'll do better wholesale. That's you know? exactly. <laughs> she said, right. you'll also know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I said, well, why should I be different from the other guys in Washington? She said, well, because you're the secretary of <laughs> education. But I remember what you just said. It, it struck me. I remember uh, going to community and uh, it was a community event at school. I was a second event. And this guy came up to me and he said, this great school. He introduced himself. He was a realtor. And he said, big thing for me is uh, I carry the scores, the test scores in yes. my back pocket. Yes. And we used to give out awards for excellence schools different communities it would give them to communities a b or c and i remember distinctly uh at a ceremony for a school of excellence commu- uh, a district of excellence in missouri uh people came up to me afterwards were the realtors yeah and they said this recognition of these schools of excellence you don't know what it means to us
3: absolutely they're really interesting absolutely yeah. a when you were, we're talking about housing and schools and local jobs, we um, what we're talking about is community. This is this is just a, a, a word that gets bastardized today. It is a local community. And back to my uh, uh, my disdain for the for the Silicon Valley types. Um, what they what are they what what do they promote? What do they do? They need to have something of scale. I mean, that's that's their their nomenclature they use. That's their. Their their, their words, their language, it's got to be scalable. It's got to be big. It's got to be something that they can repeat. Well, that's why they like apartments, because you can repeat them all over the place. That's why they like these other businesses where everyone has a phone or everyone has an app to do something. One thing that's very difficult to scale, and that is local community housing, which is the advantage for small business. Small businesses are not, by definition, not scalable but it doesn't mean they're bad it doesn't mean they're not needed but it is the one it's the one um uh, market in this country that has very little political involvement because it's not big it's not scalable it's not uh, you know it's just not something that has the attention of many people however that many people really are the middle class and millennials that are moving it has their attention and probably you know, several years from now, maybe maybe the, the others will pick up on it. But they're doing it instinctively.
0: Uh, I want to uh, I want to ask you something here as we draw toward the end of the discussion. But I saw some figures. It was this morning. I get uh, I forget where I am in the time zones, but I think it was this morning. It may have been yesterday morning <laughs> about debt. Um, and if you if you yeah. uh, figured the debt per capita per individual. Um, to pay off the debt, Chicago is like one
3: hundred eighteen thousand dollars per person. Yes, yes, I, I you saw, saw that. the same. Yeah, yeah. and significant. I, New York, the same. Yeah, and all California, big the cities, same. The big, cities. big cities.
0: So, with that in mind, and what you've said already, and the burdens that this, these places put on people, apart from the opportunity and you know and, and excitement, et cetera, et cetera. Ten years in the future, what's what's it going to look like? Uh, are we still going to have these great big cities? If we are, what are they going to look like? Who's going to live there? Um, where, where's going to be the center of the country, uh, if you will, in terms of population? What are we going to see? You know, fewer apartments, yeah. more houses,
3: or more apartments, fewer houses? Um, two two answers to the question. Good, yeah. Um, currently in the world, there's about 33 what they call megacities, 10 million people or more. In the next uh, 20 years or so, there's going to be another 10 or 15 of those megacities. They're basically going to be in, in uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, and Africa, basically. Um, very few megacities are in Europe or the United States. Actually, I don't think there they might not even be, uh, other than New York, there might not even be one. Um, over the, since 1950, uh, the 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 urban population of the world in 1950 was less than a third, maybe less than 30%. It's now worldwide more than 55% and climbing. So that's from a world perspective. From the United States, we're the most, one of the most unique countries ever. And and I'm a proponent for everyone to keep leaving these cities to to, to stem that tide. Um, and so, I think the answer is worldwide. These cities are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because the orthodoxy, the catechism of, of uh, uh, you know, put people in a big area, uh, public transportation, everything is solved. Air quality solved, income inequality solved, tra- traffic solved. Of course, that's not true.
0: I was just thinking of LA as you were running <laughs> through that list. Air quality, traffic. It's
3: just not true. But um, the the hope is. That at least in the United States, because we have choices here, we have 50 different states, um, I think it will, uh, my hope is that it will decline. I doubt it because of the the push towards that way. But as long as people keep understanding their choices and want to have families and want to have kids, that's going to help.
0: The world, the universe, the world, the earth will have mil- more, twice as many, maybe three times as many huge cities.
3: A, 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 maybe not three times, but there will be a, a lot more. A lot more. I mean, and, and but when you have another 10 or 15 of them, yeah. that's 10 million times that. Right, right. We're so it's talking about billions of people of in the world will live in these big cities. will be a counter trend, you think? I, we are. We will we, be. We are and will be. We will be. We, we, we So... You know, a lot of the now the reporting on what's going on in the United States is the despicable um, situations of the big cities. The counterbalance, which we talk about here a lot, is where is it good? And it's good so many places. Now, if if the metric, if the metric is how many people, well, if you don't like the result that people are leaving big cities, you're going to just change the measurement. You're going to say, well, still more people are moving to cities and that's your measurement. If the measurement is quality of life, um, you, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, the small apartment. You know, even in Denver, Colorado, there's a new apartment complex, a 500 square foot studio apartment for almost $1,700 a month. And the the headline was, "How do we encourage people to do this?" And they said, "Well, we make their, we elevate their living." That was their their phrase. We're going to elevate their living standards. How do they do that? How do they do that? Um, have a gym there so they don't have to go to a gym. Have a co-working area, so they don't have to go to WeWorks. Um, give them some Patagonia uh, moving, uh, you know, jackets and gifts, fresh flowers. That's the notion of what's trying to be sold in a city. Interesting. And yeah. it's not where it's not where someone who is you know interested in faith and family and kids. That's not that's not going to be saleable to them. It's going to be a conflict. But that's the difference of the of who's going to live in these cities versus who's not. Thank you. To be continued, right? Yes. We will continue yeah. this. Yes.
0: And folks, I want to say here because we get such a great response to Joel Farkas when he's on that we want to get your emails. And one of these times, Joel, we're going to read those emails back to you and get your response. Okay, that'd be great. That'd be that'd great. Be... Thank you very much, sir. Thank, Thank you. you, Bill. Thank you. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me. I still can't get used to that phrase. Like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Share this podcast with your family and friends.
2: We'll catch up next week.